So once you know a little bit about these animals and that they are looking at you and they're reacting to you, suddenly you've got a sense for who they are and you start caring about them and you start marveling and how they fit into this extraordinary web and who predates on them. And suddenly this whole distance between you and the wild starts to blur and you start to feel part of that incredible environment part of their lives and suddenly what you realize is this biodiversity as you well know kathy this entire system is literally allowing you to be alive from second to second this biodiversity is the life support system of our planet this is the original mother that's nurtured us for hundreds of thousands of years and, and made it possible for us to exist you're not separate I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi, I'm Kathy Sullivan, and I'm an explorer. Exploring doesn't always have to involve going to some remote or exotic place. It simply requires your commitment to put curiosity into action. So join me on this podcast journey as I reflect on lessons learned from life so far and from my brilliant and ever inquisitive guests. We'll explore together in this very moment from right where you are. Spaceship not required. Welcome to Kathy Sullivan Explores. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at kathysullivanexplores.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on Earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you and also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. If you haven't yet seen the Netflix feature My Octopus Teacher, I urge you to check it out. It's one of the most beautiful documentaries I've seen in a very long time. Told from the point of view of the octopus's pupil, Craig Foster, it captures the richness and intimacy of our relationship with the ocean in a truly unique and powerful way. The scenes of the octopus interacting intelligently with its human pupil are enthralling and deeply moving. They reminded me of my own glorious encounters with octopuses in the wild. You know, I've long thought that if we humans lived in the ocean, octopi would surely take the place of dogs as our best friends. Craig Foster is a filmmaker whose earliest years were spent living nearly wild on the remote Atlantic shore of the Western Cape in South Africa. After a stint in the Navy, an attempt to study law, and 25 years of documentary filmmaking, he returned to his home waters to revitalize his spirit and sense of purpose. Then he met the octopus that became his teacher and friend. Today he shares with us the deep insights he gained from the San people, one of Africa's most ancient tracking tribes. And from the year he spent living in the kelp forest with that wonderful eight-armed teacher. His story offers lessons for all of us about our deep and vital connection to nature and the implications of this for the future of both humankind and our planet. Join me now as we dive into the conversation with Craig Foster. So, Craig Foster, Mr. Octopus Man, it's so delightful to have you on the podcast. Wonderful to be speaking to you, Kathy. I've heard so much about you and your incredible adventures. Ah, likewise, I'm sure. I only just recently watched My Octopus Teacher for a second time and got, as one does, so much more out of it with a second look. It's a wonderful, entrancing, mesmerizing story. And we'll come to that because there's so much I want to hear about your relationship to that little octopus. But if you would, let's roll the tape further back and start with the young Craig Foster. Tell me, tell me about that young Craig Foster, where, where he was born and raised, what his family was like, what your early childhood memories are. Sure, Kathy. Um, I was born here, Cape Town, on the tip of Africa. Um, and I was lucky enough to spend the first 10 years um, of my life in our little a wooden bungalow, which is our family home, which was hard to believe, but it's actually below the high water mark. So it was so close to the ocean, it felt like we were literally on a little ship. 
you know, the waves used to come up in the big Atlantic storms and actually break the doors down sometimes, swirl around the whole house. Um, so it was an incredibly adventurous place to grow up as a child. And I quickly became fascinated from about the age of two um, with the intertidal environment, the rock pools. I started diving when I was about three years old. I used to dive on my father's back. And so the sea is my, it's my first kind of memories of the sea and the kelp and this uh, incredible coast here. So I fell in love with it at a very, very young age. And some of the creatures, uh, you know, I got to know as a, extremely young and I could almost swim before I could walk. And, and my, you know, strongest memories, even, you know, if I look back in the last, in the first 20 years of my life, the, the strongest memories are those first 10 years growing up in that extraordinary environment, so close to that ocean. Was your house up on stilts or did you just get accustomed to having the entire ground floor decimated now and then? Uh, no, it wasn't uh, on stilts. The house is still there, but it's now been adjusted. Um, the whole, I think it had to be taken down and rebuilt because it's just too close. And we had, used to have these special wooden boards. I've still got a piece of that board um, that my parents used to put up against the windows because the, the storms used to come in and then the waves used to hit the windows but bring up rocks and just smash everything. And the kelp used to be you know, up against the house a meter deep you know, in the mornings, this kind of thing. These animals that can predict when the storms are coming, used to come through the garden and sometimes through the house, all these thousands of little crustaceans called isopods. Uh, so it was just really closely connected to the ocean. So no, it wasn't up on stilts and we just, it was just part of life. I mean, it wasn't that the damage happened that often uh, yeah. because we knew how to deal with, but the big storms of course yeah. were, were a problem, yeah. So you would have this wave of isopods trekking through the house when they knew it was time to get out of the way of a storm? That's amazing. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So were you in school in those years? School usually starts at age five. Yeah, it was a huge shock, Kathy, to go from that environment. Just every day I was out in the tidal pools swimming around. And then I remember being horrified at having to go to school. I was an incredibly shy child. I hardly spoke for the first year at school. So it was a terrible shock and I didn't enjoy it at all. I just wanted to be in that magical kelp forest environment the whole day. Uh, the last thing I wanted to do was go to school. Was it day school or were you sent away to boarding school? It seems like your place was pretty remote. It wasn't clear what kind of a town or city you had nearby. It, you know, it was surprisingly close actually at that point to the city of Cape Town, but it's a small city. It's like a tiny village compared to the cities of America. There were very few people in those days. I mean, this is like late, late 1960s. It wasn't fashionable to live next to the ocean like this. So you could get a place like this for nothing. Now the properties there are worth a lot. So it was quite close. I just went to day school. I would have you know, freaked if I'd had to go to boarding school. <laughs> uh, so all I wanted to do was be in that environment. I just come back from school. It wasn't, it was like a half a day or less, you know, it was like a preschool and then just carry on with uh, being in that environment. And I was very fortunate. My parents were very young, so they had to go to work every day. But my grandmother and my great-grandmother used to walk along the coast every day and be with myself and my brother. And they were extraordinary people that sort of nurtured us and they... They love to hear the stories of these animals and creatures that we found in the intertidal. So, you know, when you've got loving mentors like that, you can come back every day and tell the stories to. It creates that extraordinary cycle of curiosity and interest. And I remember you had something about your childhood also that gave you a strength uh, like that. I remember reading something about that. Yeah, it's and it develops that storytelling muscle at a very early age, how to, how to engage people. So how long had your family lived in South Africa? There was the third generation that had been living uh, in South Africa so for quite a while, but they moved to this environment 
uh, and this little house shortly before I was born. So I was very, very lucky to sort of be the right time. So you're, you're enduring day school at the half day level at age five or six or something. It, surely it becomes all day long schooling at some age. What was that like? Did you ever take to schooling or was it always just like sandpaper on your back? Um, well, when I was 10, my parents moved to the suburbs inland. And that was a real shock because uh, they wanted me to go to this sort of better school that my father had been to, which was great and lots of good sport and it was a good education. But it was a hell of a shock for me being away from the ocean and I yearned for it. But I'd go back. It wasn't that far away. It was like half an hour's drive away. So I used to go most weekends back to the ocean. But, you know, you get involved in sport. I enjoyed the school as a child. I don't know if you, you don't easily know what's going on, you know, consciously. But it, it, it's taken me a long time, in a way, to return. Now I live right next to the ocean again, to return to my, you know, childhood love and my deepest passion. Yeah. How would your teachers have described you at age 10 or 12? Were you still that quiet, shy boy or starting to come out of a shell? I guess I was uh, quite naughty at school, but sort of shy at the same time. Definitely not a model student, unfortunately. <laughs> um, but <laughs> I got through okay. You know, I probably was a pain in the ass, uh, to be honest. <laughs> and as you were finishing your secondary schooling, do you remember what your thought was about the path you wanted to take in life, what you were interested in, or what talents and skills you had recognized in yourself at that point? But I was fortunate at school to, at age 12, my best friend at the time, Jeremy, his father had a, it was very rare in those days in South Africa, had a little simple VHS camera and a one-to-one -one edit suite. So at 12 years old, we started, the two of us, making silly little films. And that got a, me interested in storytelling and filmmaking from a very young age. And then when I left school, um, we had to do national service. So it was got into the Navy. Again, I got in through Jeremy into the film school oh. in the Navy. So I got a bit of, you know, got two years of doing that. But my passion was, you know, grown up almost in this wild environment connected to animals. So my the most exciting people that I could imagine meeting, and it was the same with my brother, were people who'd understood nature at the deepest level and was a natural thing for us to seek out the great trackers uh, of Southern Africa, the San, the Junkasi, the, the Guique. In Botswana, further inland, right? In Botswana, in Namibia, partly in South Africa, but mostly Botswana and Namibia. And that was our dream, was to meet people who'd uh, perhaps even lived part of their lives fully wild and were deeply connected to nature. And I started by finding their rock art and working on the, their rock art, uh, which is obviously, you know, from, from a deeper past. And then finally, you know, having the privilege of, of working closely with them for many years. Are those very ancient peoples, the song? You mentioned the deep past. Genetically, they're supposed to be, according to the science, the oldest people on our planet. Uh, and certainly uh, Southern Africa, uh, many scientists believe to be uh, the origin of our species. So we, we're looking at the grandmother and grandfather of every human that's ever existed. Wow. And were you able to go sort of meld with them? And do you talk in the film about being inspired by their ability to perceive and recognize things in nature that at the time were beyond your ken. How closely engaged or intertwined or embedded with them did they allow you to be? Well, what's interesting about a hunting and gathering culture as opposed to agricultural culture is they're very open to outsiders. They don't sort of hold a lot of sort of secret knowledge and that kind of thing. So they're very open to us. And once they sensed what we were trying to do, because we used to take the the rough cuts and the films back to them. They got quite excited to share their knowledge. It was just their knowledge for them was just normal. They'd, they'd grown up as children tracking at this incredible level. 
And it's only when we reflected it back on them that they think, wow, this is actually quite potentially valuable. So they got excited and, 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 and showed us a lot of extraordinary things and taught us. So they were very kind to us, very open, but the process of filmmaking was sometimes slow and very boring for them. So they're quite patient with us, you know, um, and it was, we had to be careful not to go for two longer periods because like that they'd get bored and uh, understandably, I mean. Uh, with all the, the retakes and reframings and things like that? Well, you didn't have much time for that. They weren't interested in that at okay. all. That's one thing you couldn't do. <laughs> uh, they were like, you either follow us and see what we're doing or you're not going to. Uh, we're not going to do right. that. We're not going to become actors. No, no, they were not interested in that, <laughs> um, which is which was quite good. But we certainly, you know, learned so much from them. Craig, how did you communicate with them by language or sign or how did that work? There were only two people in the world outside of their community who could speak the language, Kaur and Kwekwe of central Botswana. And they advised us not to try to learn the language. It's it's 10 times more difficult to learn than English Ooh. and rather to work with a very good translator. So one of the tracker's brothers uh, was a very good English speaker, uh, extremely good translator. So we just worked uh, through him. And the role of these trackers in their society, is it what I would imagine, which is to track the game that they need or is it? Are there other dimensions to it? tracking hazards, tracking threats to the community? I think of tracking in a hunting sense. Uh, yes. I mean, a primary motivation is tracking animals to literally, you know, feed their families, feed the children. But it's also, I mean, they explained to us that if there were no animals left, they would still be out tracking tracking, huh. tracking, and they just keep saying that and they'd keep saying the names of the animals. So it's a very, very deep and ancient connection to the wild and tracking is the way of accessing that. And they, they're interested in tracking beyond uh, what's required for hunting. So they're interested in insect tracks, a lot of behavioral tracks, you know, small, small things. So it's a curiosity that goes deep uh, into the natural world. And it's, um, they're talking about it like a, a way of speaking with God is how they described it. When we're, we're tracking, when we're dancing, we're talking with God. So it becomes a, a spiritual, almost religious uh, way of connecting with the wild, uh, with the animals that they know so well, and with the, the big mother nature. So it's a practical necessity, but also a form of communion. Exactly. It's often a, a sacred thing born out of necessity. So it, it grows in practicality and then it gets illuminated through a deeper sense. And is that an inherited role in the community? Father trains son or another boy could apprentice into the craft? It doesn't work like that so much. So they don't have formal training like that. It's all learned through just by being part of the community and it's just passed on. So, so say the older tracker's eyes might be going and then the younger person steps in and becomes the eyes of the older person, that kind of thing. So it's very reciprocal. It's not like our societies where you apprentice and you, it, it's much more fluid. Fascinating. So you spent time out there, you said you went out there because you were interested in it. Was that in relation to a specific film project or just you following that curiosity about the trackers? It was mostly born out of just a pure passion to understand um, the wild through people we kind of instinctively knew were closer to it than anybody else and had this incredibly long tradition uh, of doing this. And then because... We had to survive and had to make a living. We thought it'd be a good idea to combine our knowledge of, this is my brother and myself, filmmaking with our passion. So we started to make films with the song and it was quite a collaborative process. As I say, we'd take the films back to them, they'd comment on it and then we'd re-edit according to their comments. So it was a nice way of really trying to get a good sense of, of who they were. It was all the films were often the stories were first person. 
in those days people didn't really do that much we wanted them to speak with their own voices and we'd do a lot of talks with them and then try and get it to you know come out in their own voice that kind of thing wow so this is after your couple of years in the navy and and how long was this time frame that you spent was it directly into the song project after you left the navy no no so when i left the navy i actually worked a little bit in cape town in a film production place and then i went to europe and worked in struggled to get a job worked in london as an editor film editor for a while and really struggled in that city in a big city like that it was i was where i just remember being gray going gray <laughs> and then i to try to get sort of life and energy back i went and lived on a island in the caribbean just lived wild for for five months on an island diving every day to fully recover and then it was on that island and just living in the jungle living off the sea that i started to get this tremendous pull back to africa and then i worked my way through america so i didn't have enough money to fly back and found little odd jobs and people were very kind to me in America. And then I managed to get enough money to fly back home. And that's when I linked up with my brother and we started uh, going deep into Southern Africa and making these, we made 25 films altogether wow. over the years. Give me a sense of how long that time span was from your stint in Europe and burning out in the Caribbean and America. Is that you're talking a couple of years, five years? One and a half years in London, six months in the, on the island or so, and then another six or eight months in America to get back. And then we spent you know, three years making the first wow. film. Wow. You talk in The Octopus Teacher about reaching another round of burnout. And in fact, your description of how you reacted to London and how you needed to recharge strikes me as quite similar to the story you tell in my octopus teacher about needing to get back to the sea and back closer to nature and recharge. When did that come about? You've spent these three years now out with the sun. You've made these 25 films. I presume they were not all about the sun. Walk me through that again. It struck me as an experience like falling off the edge of the earth. You're suddenly kind of in some free fall and trying to find yourself again. Is that how it was? Um, no, it's just a slower process. So you must remember then we went... From that first film we did in the Kalahari, we went and had a quite a wonderful and tough uh, film career in Africa over a period of 25 years. Um, you know, Central Africa, West Africa, 24 African countries. What kind of films? Uh, films about the San, films about African cosmology, films about human origins. We did some of the first expeditions to dive with crocodiles in the Okavango. Wow. It was pretty hair-raising, an interesting film about sharks. So many films and many incredible adventures. You know, the, the biggest thing that I guess I haven't told you is that this time with those incredible trackers was a sense of for a short time, living the original human lifestyle and feeling the, the, the original human design, what it's like to live very close to the wild. And it was very exciting and also terrifying because I felt how little I knew about nature. And I thought I knew quite a bit about nature at that point. So this whole career, in a way, in the back of my subconscious, I'm wanting to get closer to the wild. I want to get close to my original design. I want to feel what it's like to be a human at the original level. And I'm seeking these, you know, powerful experiences as big dangerous animals, you know, diving with great whites in open water, diving with crocodiles inside their lairs, you know, taking very calculated risks and thinking that that's the way into, you know, connecting with the wild and then making films about that and all the pressures of filmmaking and the, the difficulties of finance of documentary filmmaking, which is really challenging, especially in Africa. And then just having to take on too many projects to survive. And then that slowly just starts to wear you down because you want to get close to nature, but actually in some ways this filmmaking process 
is keeping you away because you have to spend months in the edit suite and you, you you can't immerse. So I finally just stopped all that. And I was pretty exhausted, burnt out, whatever you want to say. And that's when I decided to go back to what I call the magical kingdom, the great <laughs> African sea, the great African sea forest, the childhood dream. Yeah, your childhood Disneyland. Exactly. And and then to see what it would be like to immerse every day. And um, would it be as interesting and fulfilling as I thought? And would it give me energy? Because that at that stage, I was thinking, I'll never want to make another film, pick up another camera in my life. I'm just exhausted. And it's a slow process of just swimming for the first year, just getting used to being cold every day, you know, eventually stopping shivering, and then slowly getting to know these animals of my childhood, but at a much deeper level, getting into their behaviors. And finally thinking, oh, could I track underwater? Three years to develop uh, underwater tracking uh, methods. Wait, so, I mean, this is astonishing to me because one thing that, is striking to me about my octopus teachers. I, I couldn't tell sort of where we were in time. I kind of could tell it was the year, the year-long story of you with the octopus, but there was clearly broader span there. So was it three years of getting adapted to the cold swing and free diving before you encountered your octopus? Yeah, well, it's a first about a year to get used to the, the cold. What is the water temperature? It ranges from about nine degrees Celsius to like 16 degrees Celsius. So that's high 40s to mid 50s in Fahrenheit. Yeah, maybe a bit warmer than that. Okay. You know, sometimes it's really icy. And now in the middle of winter, when you go out and there's a strong wind chill and that it's pretty tough. But in summer, it's, I find it quite luxurious because the water temperature here goes up a bit in summer. So yeah. it's not all hardcore, but winters, especially many winters alone. It's hard to go in every day. The cold also is a tremendous help because it clears the brain. You get this huge influx of chemicals in the brain and it it clears your thinking and it uplifts you. So it's actually very good for tracking. So it was probably about um, four years of, of doing the acclimatization and the tracking before I actually met my wonderful octopus teacher and started that whole process. Oh, my goodness. So walk me through that a little bit, your acclimatization. When you first start in the cold water, you're doing two things at once. You're getting yourself used to very cold water. And I don't know if you had free dived before, but you're conditioning your breathing so that you can spend a goodly amount of time at a pretty respectable depth without scuba gear. Walk us through a little bit what those stages were, how short you were at the beginning, and what what are the breakthroughs physiologically and mentally of becoming the free diver, cold water free diver that you are in the film? I'm a complete warm water scuba diver, so I just watched all that with the most intense admiration and, and a bit of a shudder, I must say. It's, it's not, not the kind of diving I could ever imagine. I dived my entire life, so I'd never totally disconnected Every time I'd come back from those big African trips, I'd go straight into the Atlantic Ocean. I'd never missed that connection. Wherever I went, even in Africa, I'd dive in the lakes and I got terrible parasites from doing that. I'd swim across lakes and I'd always been like deeply attracted to water and diving. You know, Lake Malawi had incredible diving. Uh, so I'd always kept up the free diving. And I'd sometimes worn wetsuits, sometimes hadn't. So I wasn't that well cold adapted. But now I wanted to know what it was like to go become more original in terms of my connection. How how far could a human body take? You know, what did it take to adapt? So I'd be shivering after 25 minutes, 20 minutes initially, every day, shivering quite badly. And it was tough. And it was tough to concentrate when you're dealing with that cold. And then one day, I just, after about a year, I just stopped shivering. Mm. And what I think starts to happen is um, this brown fat adipose tissue starts to rebuild itself. So each child has this brown fat. That's why a a newborn child won't shiver. They just turn on the, the heaters, which is the brown fat. The baby fat. You know, it's it's not visible outside the body. It's okay. these are down the chest and down the back, inside the body. They are 
small pockets of brown fat adipose tissue, which is different to white fat. And they can generate an enormous amount of heat. So once you rebuild them, because uh, if, you, if you take yourself and live indoors and wear jackets and don't expose yourself to cold, they, they, they sort of shrivel away. But if you expose yourself to cold, they rebuild up. And this is how you know, humans kept themselves, wild humans kept themselves warm. So this, these started to build back up. So you'd be swimming along and sometimes pretty cold and suddenly you'd get this incredible sense of heat coming through the body, an absolutely wonderful feeling. So your skin is icy cold and the inside of your body is warm. That's what I felt, you know, this morning when I went in, really cold, really cold wind and this tremendous warmth coming from inside the body. And it's a wonderful feeling. Wow. So I could slowly build up the time in the water, more and more time, and then be very comfortable in the water, even in pretty cold conditions, but still having these chemicals, you know, your, your dopamine, noradrenaline, enormous flooding of the, the brain with these chemicals in the cold. And that focuses you in a beautiful way and relaxes you. And I think is a helps you to, to, to see these very subtle underwater tracks and it's to make deductions as to what's going on with this, these animal behaviors. So it was an interesting combination. And then slowly, slowly seeing my first animal tracks and then thinking, wow, could I possibly do some sort of animal tracking? And then over the years, building up the repertoire of hundreds of, of track and sign and, and having this very exciting window into these animal animals' worlds through the tracking. What was that first animal whose track you recognized? Uh, it's called a Bernapino whelk. It's like a predatory snail and they leave a slime trail on the rock and then the, the turbulent water puts tiny, tiny little particles of sand onto the slime. And then you can see that track going over the rock because of the sand particles and follow to find the animal. That was more similar to an animal track in some ways, but a lot of the other tracking is very dissimilar and I just have to find, you know, find those, those keys. There's a scene in the movie where you have this huge array on a work table of some sort of shells and remnants of critters, and you're sort of cataloging and drawing kind of an ecological web, a behavioral web. Tell us about that and what you were trying to do there, what you were learning as you pieced that all together. How do you, how do you think of the kelp forest now, or how do you understand it now compared to, say, when you first went in? as a boy, or even when you first went in at the start of your, your recovery journey? That's a great question, Kathy. It, it's so different because then it was just this forest that I loved. And I certainly knew a lot of the animals, but I didn't know much about their secret lives and their incredible biology. So now through the tracking, and as you say, collecting thousands of these little shells and all the predation marks, all the little norm marks it's given me along with and i must say i've worked with some incredible marine scientists and you know professor charles griffiths has taken me under his wing and been an incredible mentor so it's it's a combination of the of the deep nature immersion every day in the water having amazing scientists around me helping me with the process and then having in the back of my mind that incredible indigenous knowledge and the sounds tracking way of seeing the wild and combining those three things and, and trying to find uh, ways of telling the story of these magnificent animals. And what happens is, I mean, only recently, I'll give an example. Uh, you've probably seen um, feather duster worms. Mm -hmm. Love them. Yeah, they're beautiful. And you kind of see them and then they kind of close up. For people who haven't been underwater, give us a little description of a feather duster worm, what it, what would it look like? What would you see? Okay. Uh, you'd see a brilliant branchial crown that looks like two feather dusters together, but it's, it's often brightly colored. And then suddenly this animal will just disappear into a little tube that is created. And what they're doing is they are feeding with these uh, radioles or these feathers, and they're incredibly intricate lives in that they um, can sample tiny pieces of, of plankton, phytoplankton, and they, 
they push them towards the mouth. And what is happening is they also have eyes on those feathers that can actually see you and see shadow and light. And this is why they're closing up. And their lives are intricate and very complex and very beautiful. And they even collect other debris in the water and collect it in special little sacks, which they build this tube, which they live in. So once you know a little bit about these animals and that they are looking at you and they're reacting to you, suddenly you've got a sense for who they are and you start caring about them and you start marveling and how they fit into this extraordinary web and who predates on them. And suddenly this whole distance between you and the wild starts to blur and you start to feel part of that incredible environment, part of their lives. And suddenly what you realize is this biodiversity, as you well know, Kathy, this entire system is literally allowing you to be alive from second to second. This biodiversity is the life support system of our planet. This is the original mother that's nurtured us for hundreds of thousands of years and, and made it possible for us to exist. And suddenly, you know, <laughs> the hairs on your neck start to stand up and you realize that you are totally woven into the system. You're not separate. And then it's a totally different relationship. It's, it's, a, it's a form of love and deep respect and care that starts to, to bubble out of that. And then the whole thing changes. And one's curiosity and desire to know their intricate lives grows. So you're desperate to go back every day and learn more and more. And each little piece of this giant puzzle of their lives enhances you and somehow is a mirror inside your own psyche. As, as that knowledge grows, you you feel more, at least I feel more human in a sense. I feel more wild and more human. Wow. Yeah, I I don't free dive, but I do scuba dive. And I try to do much what you're saying. Just settle somewhere, stop, don't move, go slow, very slow, gentle breathing, and just see who's around and see what they're doing and and watch how they interact with each other. You know, it's like a town square on a, on a patch of reef. There's a lot going on, and it's kind of is like sitting on a park bench and watching a society swirl around you. If you just sit still and get into the environment, that's a fabulous description of what you've come to see. So, do you think you've reached a kind of intimacy with your kelp forest that you admired in the San and their intimacy with their environment? Not even close. <laughs> Yeah, I need at least the, the rest of my life to start getting <laughs> you know, not, not even close to where they are. So the, wow. the huge advantage they have is many of the my mentors there grew up fairly wild. So every day, 24 hours a day in the wild, and you've got incredible teachers, your parents, your grandparents, teaching you about tracking, teaching you about the wild. So... I had a little bit of that, but not anywhere near that, that level. They've also got thousands of a gen generations of accumulated knowledge passed down. So it'll be very difficult for me to ever catch up, but it's a, it's a nice, you know, something to go for. Um, you, you never want to stop because you know, you've got a long way to go. And I feel I'm just learning the whole time, even though I've spent now 10 years, pretty much every day and had that childhood 10 years. It's not nearly enough. I've got it, uh, some advantage with science and incredible scientists can fill in a lot of gaps, but you'll, I don't think I'll ever catch up close to those, those tracking masters. I'm curious about another aspect of your journey through filmmaking back to the ocean and, and you're falling in love with and immersing in the, in the kelp forest. I wonder how it's affected your relationship in particular with your son, Tom, and his view of the world. How old is Tom now? Uh, he's 19 now. Yeah. So he's quite young when this journey all started. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So, you know, I started very young with him, actually. I started him also at about three years old. He was on my back diving down. So he's known and I've been very connected to the ocean from a very young age. And he's had incredible experiences with animals and big sharks and, you know, 
And then I guess it's a bit, uh, sometimes people misunderstand in the film. I didn't feel disconnected from him. I just felt so tired and exhausted at that stage yeah. that I felt I couldn't be a good father in that state. I needed to get myself excited right. and passionate again to try to impart this wild knowledge to him and be a lot of energy and that's what a young child needs a, a parent who's excited about life and keen to pass on knowledge so i was fortunate enough for most of his life to be able to take him into the wild and show him a lot of things and and every weekend now he comes like this weekend we were you know hiking together along the coast diving with a beautiful shiver of sharks the weekend before body surfing uh, with sharks other interactions with with different animals otters this kind of thing so he's had a wonderful experience with the wild and because of that we've got so many stories together and so much to draw on that it's 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 a fantastic relationship built from deep nature and he's a uh, very very strong in the water very very confident and when he you know has a bit of pressure or whatever it is that's the first place he comes he just wants to come to the ocean he doesn't yet have that absolutely mad curiosity and passion that i have but i mean i didn't have it at that right. age either so that may or may not come but he's got that love and a tremendous sensitivity and i think what it's done is he's extremely confident but humble and i think that's what exposure to the wild does to a child that's that's fabulous one of the questions i had intended to ask you based just on the film before we started talking was about what seemed to be quite an epiphany of your discovery of the wild and its healing power and your connection to it. And I now see, as we've talked through, you've sort of been on that thread for a long time, but found your way to a much, much deeper level of understanding of it through the experience you tell about in the film. But I'm I'm still curious about you, me, and the world in general. What could we change in how we go about our lives and how we raise our children to make it more common rather than so rare that we reach adulthood with some sense of this this awe and this wonder and this this understanding of interconnectedness to nature that that you feel deeply Tom feels deeply I feel deeply but you know it doesn't seem commonplace and widespread in humanity how could we change that from the utilitarian here you know this is a pretty landscape. It amuses me. This is a lovely beach. Let's put a hotel on it. Or that reverence, that knowledge of connection. That's the big question, Kathy. You know, that's that's the big question that <laughs> haunts me a lot, because when you you fall in love um, with the wild and you realize how critical it is for every aspect of our existence and not even just for us just for its pure beauty that's the question you ask how how can we change human behavior because we're on a path now which somehow is, is maybe too extreme and too big of a thing for people to recognize we're on a path of serious destruction the great mass extinction is right here. We're facing a terrifying future if we don't actually have that change uh, in place. And how? And the big question is how? How do you bring about behavioral change? And the problem is that if you just put down the facts and you say, well, you know, if we don't do something very quickly, our children's children or even our children are going to find it difficult to breathe. People don't react to that. That doesn't bring about change. The hard scientific facts don't uh, make people change. We, we know that now. You know, psychology understands that. So what we need to do is combine the science. The science knows exactly what to do, but we need to combine the science with highly emotive storytelling. Because storytelling is the most powerful tool for behavioral change. Storytelling is the original science that began 300,000 years ago here in Southern Africa. That's what we are 
designed to listen to, and if we are moved, make change. So if we can combine science and storytelling in a very powerful way on multiple levels, in multiple parts of culture, that is a way that we can bring about change and make people realize that it's absolutely important every single decision in your day to be thinking about the life support system that's keeping us breathing from second to second. And that's what we've forgotten because of this disconnection. It's so difficult just to survive and have enough money to feed one's family and that, that we're in this kind of strange post-industrial survival mode where we've forgotten that the original mother is the foundation of every single thing we do. So it's about telling those stories and like what we're doing now is, is talking about these things, but it needs to be done on a grand scale, not just from people who connected to nature. And we're starting excitingly to see that happen. I mean, I'm seeing politicians, I'm seeing investment bankers, I'm seeing artists, I'm seeing people from many walks of life starting to realize how important this is. And if we have multiple stories from multiple groups of society, we can bring about this behavioral change that's necessary for, you know, not only just stopping building hotels on beaches, like you say, but actually regeneration of wild systems and allowing wild systems to recover. I lament as I think, as I listen to you and think about the media scene here in the United States, the stories that are being told that have the large audiences are Shark Week, in which you know sharks are vilified and they're it's sort of mano a mano combat of some alpha male against a shark, you know naked and afraid, which is this farcical program where two people are supposedly dropped into a truly wild place, unclothed. You know there's a production camp with probably a field hospital a hundred yards away, but it's supposedly very wild, and all these you know these contrived dramas that again reinforce, to me, distance. Nature is distant, nature is alien, nature is threatening. It's exactly the opposite set of stories to the ones that, that you're alluding to. Yes. I mean, I think what's happened is it's so difficult for the psyche to take in that we're facing this massive challenge. And the, by far the most extreme thing we face now is biodiversity collapse and climate change. None of these other things that we are, you know, in the headline news, it comes even close. It's as if we're in a house and, you know, we're arguing over the phone bill, but the whole house is burning and you're not taking note of that. You know, and there's huge arguments over, you know, these so-called big issues. But this is our great mother, our planet, our ecosystem, our biodiversity is under enormous threat because of us. We don't do something about it pretty fast. The, the repercussions are extreme. And that's really what everything, everyone should be focusing on. So, yeah, I agree with you. And the messaging, you know, with alien, you know, scary nature certainly doesn't help that at all. It's, it's our life support system. It's, our, it's the most beautiful thing, certainly, that I've ever seen. So... Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it seems very strange not to be uh, nurturing that. So are you hopeful or fearful for how things will go forward from here? <laughs> A bit of both, I think. <laughs> I mean, I think that what's hopeful is that, you know, I see the big storms come through here and sometimes it's really devastating. So they'll just rip all the animals, thousands of animals off a reef. Or we'll get a heat wave and a lot of animals will die. And it's like, oh, so terrifying. And then six months later, that entire reef has reestablished itself in a sort of incredibly fast, magical way. So if you do leave nature alone, it's extraordinary how quickly it reestablishes itself. So there's a lot of hope in the resilience of, of wild animals and wild creatures to return quite fast if we don't put all these pressures on them. And I am hopeful because I see a lot of people interested in, in nature, interested in, in conservation, in regeneration, far more than before. Um, but I'm also fearful because it, there, there are other parts of society which want to return to sort of uh, life as usual, endless 
growth in a finite world. It's just, you know, it's just, there's no, there's no model that, that shows that that works. It's just, it's, it's madness. We're coming to the close of our time. I want to hear a little bit about Sea Change, the project you started to help carry on this closeness to nature in the wild and ideally help preserve, uh, maybe as a marine sanctuary, the great South African kelp forest. When did you establish that? And tell us a bit what what activities you do and how many people you've managed to engage. You're building a sea change army? <laughs> yeah. We have um, nine incredibly committed, passionate scientists, storytellers, filmmakers, writers, who, you know, for the first, I think we've been going for eight years. At first, just were, you know, totally volunteered their time for many years. And what we're trying to do is a series of projects that bring these things, these issues that we're talking about here, into people's minds. And we're trying to merge the storytelling and science in a way that, you know, large parts of the population can really understand just how precious it is and what we could do to make this behavioral change. So we are yeah, full-time working with uh, a much bigger sort of a group of people around the nine people and wonderful support from government, from other NGOs, from different people around the world to try and you know, uh, make a difference. Um, but it is, it's, it's very challenging, um, but it's also exciting that to bring this place alive uh, and to, to illuminate the lives of these extraordinary animals. They're sort of voiceless and they just carry on. But if you bring them into the light and say, you know, we need to do everything we can to keep this biodiversity uh, in place. And are you pursuing specific measures to protect the kelp forest, turn it into a marine sanctuary, for example? Uh, yes, but I mean, it's... It, it has to be a huge combined effort. So there's no way, as you know, we could even consider doing this alone. We have to do it with a lot of other groups of, of right. people working at all the different levels. So uh, that is definitely one of the goals. And just to take these multiple pressures off the wild environment. Um, but sometimes in order to do that, you have to show how beautiful it is. Because mm -hmm. how does a politician, you know, stuck in uh, office or whatever, know what's going on? So we're bringing those stories to these people and we're seeing, you know, incredible results from that. We've got credible feedback and letters from our politicians who are saying we never knew what we had and we, we need to be looking after this now. Oh, that's wonderful. That's so encouraging. Mm. Well, Craig, you've had an absolutely fascinating life, and I thank you for sharing so so deeply and so warmly and richly your very deep sense of nature and our connection to it in such eloquent and compelling ways. It's just been a delight. I would say I love look forward to diving with you someday, but like I said, I'm a seriously committed warm water only person, so maybe we'll just have a beer along the shore sometime. Where do you hail from? Where's your, your genetic heritage? And I can tell you if you've got the cold water gene or not. Scottish blood? It's 100% Southwest Ireland, so I surely must have it. Ah. Both sides of the family. <laughs> yeah, you'd probably but, be, be fine. <laughs> well, I was raised in Southern California, but have always gravitated to higher latitudes and cooler climates. So I think that's some signal that I've got that element in me somewhere. But it, it's not yet carried over to my compulsion to dive in cold water. We'll see. Maybe we have a long friendship coming ahead and you'll get me there eventually. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much, Kathy. And uh, just wonderful speaking to you. Incredible questions. And uh, it felt very good talking to you. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to kathysullivanexplores.com.